Greetings, Sapiens. This is Chance Gilliam, welcoming you to the Chance by Chance podcast, a resource for young creators in the professional field. Spring is in the air, my friends, and it is on the ground. I'm laying in a field with Murphy here. Murph, come here. The grass is green. It's, it's amazing to watch this transformation take place each year. There are wind chimes blowing, birds chirping, the sun's streaming down on me, and things are delightful. I'm in an especially great mood because today's guest on our show, Rolf Potts, informed my life's decision at a significant time in a very important way. As you'll hear in the interview, I found his book Vagabonding in the fall of my senior year of high school, and it gave me the courage to pursue travel and adventure and exploration in place of the seemingly more traditional entrance to university. And it is a choice that has served me well through time. I think travel takes practice like anything else, so I... I'm working on it, and I, I do my best to bring a that, that sense of adventure and exploration to each day of my life. Hold on, Murphy's. Murphy! <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, Rolf, Rolf really informed the decision along with, with my parents and my aunt and uncle and, and some friends and teachers at school. It was a group effort. I had a ton of support in listening to to my heart, you could say, and, and doing what I thought was right. Um, and I like where I'm at now, so it was a good decision, and I'm excited for, for where I'm headed. Taking a look at Rolf's bio, this is from his website, rolfpots.com. He's reported from more than 60 countries for the likes of National Geographic Traveler, The New Yorker, Slate, Outside, The New York Times Magazine, The Believer, The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, papers blown around here, whoa, National Public Radio, and The Travel Channel. His adventures have taken him across six continents and include piloting a fishing boat 900 miles down the Laotian Mekong, hitchhiking across Eastern Europe, traversing Israel on foot, bicycling across Burma, driving a Land Rover across South America, and traveling around the world for six weeks with no luggage or bags of any kind. That's only a taste of the adventures I'm sure this guy has had. Uh, but Rolf, six continents? Come on, man. Get on, get on that last one. Come on. Uh, Rolf is perhaps best known for promoting the ethic of independent travel and his book on the subject Vagabonding, subtitle An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel, which I absolutely love, uh, that was released in 2003 by Random House, has been through 28 printings and translated into several foreign languages. His collection of literary travel essays, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, Stories and Revelations from One Decade as a Postmodern Travel Writer, won a 2009 Lowell Thomas Award from the Society of American Travel Writers, and became the first American-authored book to win Italy's prestigious Chatwin Prize for travel writing. He's also co-written a travel-themed comic book 
and penned a volume for Bloomsbury Academics vaunted 33 and one-third series of music criticism. His newest book, Souvenir, was just published by Bloomsbury. Rolf's stories have appeared in numerous literary anthologies over the years. He has lectured at venues around the world, including New York University, the University of Lugano, the University of Melbourne, authors at Google, and the World Affairs Council. Rolf has taught semester-long nonfiction writing courses at Penn and Yale. Though he rarely stays in one place for more than a few weeks or months, Potts feels somewhat at home in Bangkok, Cairo, Pusan, New York, New Orleans, and north-central Kansas, where he keeps a small farmhouse on 30 acres near his family. Man, that's a lot of homes. That's a lot of homes, Rolf. Um, I admire the, the value placed on family. Staying close to family, I think, is important. Each July, he can be found in France, where he is the summer writer-in-residence and program director at the Paris American Academy. You also hear about that writing workshop in this interview. Uh, if you're listening to it in the spring, it's not too late to sign up. You should get yourself over to Paris if you're interested in writing. You can learn from Rolf and other accomplished instructors. I've been meaning to get over there for, for a few years. I think I'm going to have to set my sights on it seriously. Um, maybe this summer. We'll see. In our interview here, we talk about Beginning Deviate, which is Rolf's podcast. Uh, we discuss hosting a podcast, touch on the epic 5 vs. 1 basketball game, which was one of the recent episodes. We discuss his philosophy of human interaction, balancing social media usage with real-world interactions. We talk about introversion, experimental travel through constriction, perspective enhanced by mode of transportation, Kurt Vonnegut, and long hair. We uh, touch on U.S. immigration policy. Murphy, what are you doing? It's like, I'm trying to dig under a fence. <laughs> we, uh, we touch on U.S. immigration policy and mandatory national service, uh, which is... Now oh, he's barking at the fence. Dude! Come here! Which is a theory... Uh, mandatory national service is a theory from Sebastian Younger about uh, getting young people involved in service opportunities, maybe after high school or college, um, in the hopes that it would better uh, communities back home. If you put everyone into a mixing pot, building houses or serving food, um, military option, we could see um, more connectedness than we currently have. And so I get his take on that. Uh, and as I mentioned just a moment ago, Rolf also explains a little bit about the Paris Writing Workshop for those that might be interested in it. You can find more about him. Uh, he's, he's done a ton of work over the years on rolfpots.com. In particular, I'm going to point out an article he has on Game of Thrones and how the the show is a workshop in conflict-driven storytelling, which I really loved because um, I'm a big fan of that of that show and and the story too. The, I think the books are great. If you want to learn more about this podcast, you can visit chancebychance.com. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Rolf Potts. You interviewed Tim Cahill on your podcast Deviate. And made a comment about how hosting a podcast can serve as pretense for approaching your heroes. 
and much as his travel writing influenced you, Vagabonding found me uh, in the fall of 2014, which also happened to be my senior year of high school. The book really shaped my life decisions. Moreover, I realized in, in prepping for the interview that I found Vagabonding through uh, your episode on The Tim Ferriss Show, and that was the first podcast that I had ever listened to. My dad knew I had a travel bug building and, and recommended that to me. Uh, so it's, it's especially great to have you on, and I, I owe you a, a great deal of, of gratitude for all the contributions that you've indirectly made in, in my life over the years. That's awesome. That's an auspicious first episode. That was uh, the one uh, that it's been a few years now, but Tim and I spoke. That's fun. Tim, Tim Ferriss and me, yeah. Yeah, and given our, our commonality of podcasting as a medium, I'd like to start by asking how Deviate came to be, which can include your intentions in uh, podcasting as, as a platform and using that, and also how you assembled the collaborators who help you with music and production. Yeah, well, I, I'm a big podcast listener. It's become my TV in a way, you know, like... Um, it's one thing to watch television to entertain yourself, but podcasts can inform you, they can inspire you, they can entertain you while you are at the gym or while you're driving or while you're doing dishes or while you're doing any manner of other things. And I really found it just a very useful medium for all of those things, for, for information and, and entertainment and inspiration. And it felt like some of the people I was listening to in the podcast were my friends. You know, I listened to them so much that it was like, these were people that I just I'd heard chatting with me again and again and again, and I kind of wanted to join the conversation. I kind of wanted to talk back and offer just offer something back. You know, I, I, I appear on, on quite a few podcast conversations, but I have some pretty esoteric interests. And if you look, we're still in the first season of, of Deviate. There's some things like my Tim Cahill um, uh, interview, which is I'm talking to a travel writing hero of mine. Um, but like the episode that came out today is about basketball, about this guy who fouled out and had to take on the other team by himself. So I'm all over the place um, podcast-wise, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I have a professional writing life that is very focused on travel. The podcast allows me to have all these weird, goofy conversations that I don't think I could have had professionally before. It allows me to, to talk to someone like Tim Cahill in, in an open-ended way. It allows me to... Um, you know, find an old buddy from high school and say, hey, you know, you're a cop, you're, you're a black guy, I've known you forever, race and policing are in the news, let's just talk about that. Let's just avoid politics and talk about what your life is like. So it's been perfect for me just as a way to continue this conversation as a creator of podcasts and not just a listener of podcasts. And, you know, I think I, I, I told so many people about this desire that a few people kept me to my word, uh, one of which is my producer, Justin Glow, who... Um, actually was the, my cameraman and producer when I took my no-luggage trip around the world in 2010. Another is the guy who helped me with the show notes, Jan Futterman. I actually, he was a student of mine in Paris this summer. And in our last consultation in Paris, he turned the questions, turned, turned the question back on me and asked me what I was, what my ambitions were, you know, outside of my traditional writing. And I told him about the podcast and he got involved. Uh, and then someone who's not actively involved with the podcast right now is, um, uh, but was a big inspiration is my friend Mel Told. She's a writer, does a lot of screenwriting, uh, and we have a lot of creative uh, collaboration. And she's actually the one who helped me come up with the idea of Deviate. At first, I was thinking about calling it off-topic, but uh, there are other off-topic <laughs> podcasts. And so we were brainstorming, and um, she came up with Deviate, and in, in a way, it's perfect. And so my nephew, Cedar, who's 18, does the music, um, and it's actually really terrific music. Um, it's sort of experimental electronic music. 
that Justin uses to edit it in. And so I think that there are professionalized ways to start a podcast, but in my case, it was just friends and colleagues and students and family members um, helped me either um, conceptualize or create it. And so it's been a very organic process um, that it's just there's a big time investment, not a huge money investment. And I get to try out new forms and, and, and do what I like. Yeah. Uh, I've got a follow-up for that, but quickly out of curiosity, you mentioned the uh, the episode that was released today, at least as of this recording, it was uh, released today. And um, so the, the last man standing on the court, this five-against-one uh, basketball game, he, he uh, you said he's your neighbor in Kansas? Had you met him before realizing he was involved in this story? I hadn't. It, it, it's funny, I... Um... I had read about this in the Encyclopedia Brown Second Compendium of Weird Facts when I was a kid. And then it appeared in the local newspaper about 12 years ago, like on the 50th anniversary of the game. Um, so actually, that wouldn't have been 12 years ago. But not, not that long ago, uh, it appeared as a newspaper story. I actually pitched it to, like, This American Life and, and even Sports Illustrated, some, some venues I'm familiar with before. But it's just a little bit too weird of a story to, um, for them to pick up. My parents are actually my neighbors in Kansas, out in rural Kansas, and I'm here, do you know this Larry Breer? And he's like, yeah, he's the, he's the guy, you know, he puts the farm equipment in the barn. It's like, oh, my God. So when I started the, when I started the uh, podcast, I literally, this is probably the only guest, podcast guest this will ever happen, I was running down my lane for a run, you know, just like a three- or four-mile run out in the country, and here comes Larry Breer driving up with his farm equipment, and I stopped him and asked him if he wanted to tell the story about his one-on-five basketball game, Uh, and he did, and so it was a fun episode. It's the shortest episode. It's only 20 minutes, but it's also the most produced episode. Um, There's some music in it. There's some sound effects. There's me giving some narration, and there's Larry telling the story in his own voice. Uh, so it was really fun, and it's a little weird, but, uh, again, the podcast is called Deviate, so it doesn't – I don't do the same thing. I deviate from topic to topic as well – within conversations as well as within the brand. So it's fun to include, you know, Larry Breer, my 70-year-old farmer neighbor, alongside uh, Tim mm-hmm. Ferriss and Rolf Kent, who writes Hollywood movie music, and, you know, Tim Cahill, who is my role model. Yeah, you've left yourself a lot of room to maneuver within the, the concept for the podcast. Uh, and and this uh this meeting uh, Larry Breer I think you said it it ties into what had come to mind when you were describing the help that you've received from all of these different angles whether it's um it's your nephew or or a former student and this is a a meta question but I'm I'm curious how you view relationships and interactions with people what I mean by that is that as as we go about life people come and go some stick with us others drift away. But given all of the people that you've met um, throughout your decades of of travel and experience in general, how do you approach interactions with other individuals and maybe like build friendships or maintain relationships? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've met tons of people in your lifetime, and I'm, I'm curious how you think of all of those interactions. You can you can really run any direction you'd like to with that. Yeah, well, I think there's different ways that we know each other in this day and age. Um, there's people we meet in real life. There's people we meet on our driveway on the way for a run. And there's people we know in the virtual world. And it's interesting. I, I think there's something a little bit ineffable about it because I've had, like, great times on trips to wonderful places, people I've hung out with in India or Argentina or Australia. 
Um, and it's great. And I never hear back from them. They don't become lifelong friends. I've other, I've had other people who are, who are close friends to this day. It's weird. I think we use, oftentimes, there's school friends and work friends in life. When we become adults, we have our friends from maybe secondary school that we grew up with, and we have our college friends who we were sort of first adults with, and then we have our work friends that we see every day. Travel allows you another category. Especially if you're traveling long term, you can sort of be with people in an open-hearted way that a, a rather short experience, maybe shorter than what happened in school or at work, allows you to travel allows you to be open-hearted in such a way that that um, the people you're with during these intense open-hearted experiences become people that become your friends and, and confidants over time. And of course, like I've been vagabonding, I left for my first big Asia vagabonding trip 20 years ago this December. Um, my, my first um, USA vagabonding was even longer ago than that. And so I've met tons of people over time, and, and you just can't be close with hundreds and hundreds of people, right? Um, and so that's where the ineffable part comes in, and that's how it shakes out. And interestingly, I've had people I've, I've, I've corresponded with virtually who have become in-real-life friends, too. Um, mm. I think it's, it, it's better, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit more dependable to um, – meet somebody in person in some interesting place and have an experience together and have your friendship hinge on that. But I mentioned Justin Glow, who produces my podcast and had previously produced the videos that I made from my no baggage trip around the world. He's a guy who I knew virtually. He's a guy who um, read my book, followed my blog. I blogged once. This is years ago. This is before social media. I blogged. I said, oh, I'll be gone for a while, um, you know, so I won't be posting. And he emailed me and said, hey, well, why don't I help you, you know, figure out a strategy for, for keeping your blog presence even when you are gone? And have you thought about other people writing for you? And so Justin Glow was my first blog writer. Uh, Tim Ferriss was actually my second. Uh, before his book ever came out, he wrote some blog posts for me. Um, hmm. And in a way, I guess Tim Ferriss would be the same. You know, Tim Ferriss, the four-hour workweek guy, uh, of course, you're familiar with him through the podcast, he, he read my book, you know, and contacted me and over time, uh, we were sort of virtual friends and colleagues, but I've hung out with, with him in San Francisco and, and Paris and Austin, Texas now, so he's, a, he's an in-real-life friend, as is Justin Glow, who, who, who sort of a virtual friendship resulted in an around-the-world trip for him, and now he's, um, he himself is getting podcast experience um, through the fact that I'm getting podcast experience. Uh, so it's interesting. Those those two are, are both genuine friends that I met through virtual means first. So I don't want to knock that route of friendship, um, but uh, people you people you run into in your driveway count too. Uh, as as long as you bring up the virtual world, how do you use social media? I know you have a Twitter account, and it seems like you uh, you do some ro- uh, promotion for your your own material on there. Do you use any social media platforms to? maintain relationships with people and if so uh what kind of balance do you strike between staying in the real world and interacting with the people that surround you and also talking to people online well, that's a tough balance i mean i think it's easy to sort of waste your life a little bit on social media you know it can be this compulsion especially since smartphones have taken over that it can be this thing that you just compulsively go back to instead of talking to people in your life um Twitter, I was just having a conversation with someone who told me um, that I'm not very good at Twitter, and I, I proudly said, yes, I'm not very good at Twitter. I don't want to be consumed <laughs> by conversations with Twitter. Um, it's a little one way. I, 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 like, I just don't want to be in my Twitter app all day having conversations. So Facebook is a more social app for me. I would say the majority of people I communicate with on Facebook 
are people I've known before, but there are a few people that um, just over the years I've sort of gotten used to having them around via Facebook. And we either communicate on Facebook or we have ended up meeting in person. And now Instagram, it's a, it's a fairly new thing for me. I've probably only been somewhat serious about Instagram for about two, two and a half years. But that's been a fun place, too. And I, I sort of interact with people on Instagram in a way that's different than I, excuse me, than I do on Facebook. And so I actually had an Instagram friend come and meet me in, in Hawaii this winter who I'd never met in person, and, and we went hiking, and it was a blast. So um, it, it, it's funny how – but yet, you know, it's not all – however many hundred people I follow on Instagram I would go hiking with. And so, again, it goes back to that ineffable thing that for whatever reason, um, you know, there was something about her Instagram sensibility that I just some, somehow sensed that uh, it would be fun to, to, to meet up in person and uh, and hike around a little bit. So, like, I don't think that there's a, a formula for telling, for crossing the, the virtual to the real line communication. It's just it's almost like most friendships, it, it sort of becomes intuitive and it just works itself out. And I think some people are introverts and some are extroverts. I'm sort of an introvert. I'm a people person, but I'm an introvert. So um, I probably seek less people by nature. I, I enjoy being with people, but um, I also really require my solitary time. And sometimes big crowded places are less interesting to me than small and more int- intimate places. So I can see how, you know, an extrovert who is like a super people person might accumulate hundreds and hundreds of friends uh, who he or she considers to be very close friends, you know, in a way that I might not. Um, but I think I think it's good. I think uh, one thing – are you in Wisconsin now? Did you say that you're in Wisconsin? Currently, I'm in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I've got family here. I hail from Twin Cities, Minnesota, however. Okay. Either of um, them can be a good example, though, though Wisconsin – is it Appleton, you say? Lacrosse, so what? Uh, Western border, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, that, that's probably more of a corollary to like my situation in Kansas, where I live in a very sparsely populated part of Kansas, but I can have meaningful conversations all over the world. You know, that, that it, it's easy to knock the virtual world we live in, and I do knock it sometimes, but because. Um, we're living in the 21st century, and the, and the barriers between communication are smaller. That that I literally am in touch with people around the world every week, and I'm I'm an introvert. You know that there's ways of communicating and, and sort of enhancing my life. Um, as we have this interview, I'm in New York right now, um, and in a way, New York couldn't be any more different from North Central Kansas. But <laughs> my way of being in both places is pretty similar. You know, I'm I do work off my laptop. Um, I probably meet more friends in New York. It's weird numerically, even though I'm not from New York. I just have numerically more friends. Um, it's just sort of a hub. Uh, I have a lot of professional friends here. Uh, but my day-to-day, I still have this, sort of the same virtual conversations, and sometimes the virtual conversations I have with my New York friends become cocktails when I get here. My mom back in Kansas, who's my next-door neighbor, just got her knee replaced, so um, I can I can call her or FaceTime with her and, and sort of get the latest report and give her some encouragement. So... In some ways, um, since you brought this topic, it's, and in fact, it's something I didn't even think about it until I started talking about it, that we're living in an extraordinary time, you know, when we can have all the richness of face-to-face friendships, if we allow ourselves, if we can put our phones down long enough to have a face-to-face friendship, but we also have this resource of all these virtual friendships and colleagueships and, and alliances that we can use. Again, so long as we're, that we're not too obsessive or negative about it, we can use those connections to, to make our lives more fun and interesting. 
Separate but but related note, um, and once again coming from a place of personal curiosity, do you do you have any opinion on long distance romantic relationships uh, in in terms of sustainability or or practicality? Um, well, I I mean I have no reality but that um, you know there's just the, the dating pool <laughs> in Saline County, Kansas, for a guy my age it just doesn't exist. So like I don't have I don't have perspective on that. You know, I just have that that my that my dating life has been a long distance one. I think that travel in, invariably enhances it rather than than constricts it. You know, a lot I know a lot of people who met their their partners while they were traveling. Um although I know it's not easy either, you know. Uh, I have been in situations and I've talked to people who've been in situations where quite simply the distance did not make the relationship doable. That, that distance was such a factor. Like, I don't want to put too rosy of a picture on it, that, that mm-hmm. distance has, has been, um, the deciding factor in, in a relationship. That otherwise fun relationships that I've had with women over the years have just, have not worked out because there's an ocean between the relationship. Um, and there are certain romantic notions to that, but there are also certain realities that just make it really tough. Switching gears, you had mentioned, uh, your, uh, now somewhat infamous experiment in traveling without baggage and also at the beginning of the podcast where you uh, did a deep dive into the Star Spangled Banner before bringing on your guest you you shared a story about an, an experiment in traveling without a music player um, and I, th- I think both of those concepts are really cool. Do you have any thoughts on the usefulness of setting out with like a sp- specific set of stipulations like that? Because sometimes you just want to you just want to go and experience a place as you see it. But I think I, I've never done anything like this myself, but I'm intrigued by the idea of, for instance, like going without music or prescribing myself a set of limitations that will enhance the way I see the place that I'm going. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of it in this way, but as you were talking, I was thinking about some of the writing exercises I give to my students in Paris where you give them a constriction and what they write has to exist within the constriction. But their creativity, which may have not occurred to them outside of, uh, outside of the, the constriction, the rules, so to speak, of how they're supposed to write, suddenly because they've made, they put certain limitations on what you can and can't write about, suddenly they're telling stories that they might not have told otherwise. I think travel, I mean, it's absurd to think that the kind of travel that I did internationally in 1999 if you impose those same instructions artificially, no smartphone, no social media, you know, no, no advanced online booking, you can write a book about that. You know, that, that's like, oh, you know, a, a good writer could write a book about traveling for a year with no virtual information, you know, only using traveling around the world, being, you know, completely out of social media and even email contact. That can make an interesting book because those things are so central to how we live right now. And so I think it would be fun. You could almost write a handbook of, of travel. And I think somebody, oh, I forget the name of it. Um, there's a, 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 a book came out about 10 or 15 years ago, which is sort of about travel games, like things you could do with your travel that make similar challenges. But you could almost find a list of things like no baggage, no, no communication devices, uh, and make, a, make a, like a, a card deck, a challenge card deck, where if you draw this card, then you have to travel um, you know, with no smartphone for the next week or you have to travel with no baggage for the next week or something like that. I think it's fascinating. What, you know, if there was a, if there was a letdown to the no baggage trip, it's that I got used to it pretty fast. 
and there was there was very little drama you know that by that by week week two or three um I was just that I wasn't you know sitting at the road weeping from my suitcase I was just having a normal adventure I just happened to have less stuff um so and and so I suspect that the amount of people you would meet in real life like if you had no smartphone if you're asking everybody for advice if you're learning phrases of another language without a translation app to find out where to eat, to find out where to sleep, to, try, to find out when the next bus is, if you're going into travel agencies to find plane tickets to your next onward destination. What a rich way to meet people. You know, they have, you can find meetup app, apps or even dating apps to meet people in foreign places. I think we tend to forget that it used to be, you used to have to meet people constantly and depend on people constantly in as ancient as 1998, you know. This reminds me of a, a concept that I've discussed with a friend before, and, and I've also heard you mention, um, perhaps in a YouTube video, uh, that being the the speed of travel or mode of transportation can also affect your experience of a location. I've also heard you say that you tend, I don't, I don't know how, how true this is or, or if I could uh, cite, cite the source on it, but I, I believe I heard you say that you don't set out for as long of a period of time now as you used to. So does does that change also the the way that you're you're getting around these locations? Um, meaning like reliance on on buses or or a car maybe instead of you know walking across a country. Yeah, no, I have like as I've gotten older, um, I rent a lot more cars. It's been a while since I've done like three solid months on chicken buses, right? I mean, when I was a backpacker, I did that constantly. Um, where I just didn't, I didn't spend any more money than I had to. Um, it was always very slow and low to the ground, and it was a great way of travel. And I think, as I've said in some of these interviews, I miss that way of travel. These days, I'm more likely, instead of three months within a greater trip, three months is the trip, you know, which is still a pretty long trip, but is not what I used to do. And so, for example, a, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, actually, uh, I was in Namibia and Mozambique and South Africa and Swaziland. Um, I had rental cars in all of those places. And it just made things, there were things, there were places I could go to and things I could do with those vehicles, um, that I couldn't have done with chicken buses. But it made my trip more efficient. I ended up meeting fewer people. Granted, you know, there were people I met that I wouldn't have met otherwise, but when you're crammed into a bus with a bunch of people for, for 12 hours, right, while you're trying to get over a mountain pass, your experience is, is different than when you have a four wheel drive, which in Mozambique I literally did have because you sort of need one. Where you can you, know, you can patch in your your iPhone and listen to your music and and uh, turn on the air conditioner and things like that. So, I, I I won't knock the rental car route because if I did, I'd be a hypocrite because I do that a lot. Um, I was in Hawaii just a month ago, less than a month ago, and I I rented a lot of cars. Um, in fact, they gave me they gave me a Camaro on Kauai. They didn't have any economy cars, so I drove around <laughs> like I was having having a midlife crisis. It was fun. It was fun, but I <laughs> pictures of myself afterwards and I looked pretty douchey. Um, but but yeah, I think I think I guess I've sort of gotten into a pattern where where I will take my vagabonding trips in the winter and then I'll teach my class in the summer and spend a lot of time like in New York or Kansas, other places in the spring and the fall. But before too much time passes, I do want to put another solid chunk of a year on uh, and, and do some dirtbag travel again because it's just a different way of experiencing the world, and I miss it, as I think I've said before in interviews. Yeah, it, well, it sounds like there are trade-offs in, in either direction, and one is not better than the other. It really just depends on what you're going for, is, is what I gathered from that. 
there's footage of you in in Korea uh, shot in 1999. You've got some some long locks, uh, and you you're answering some questions. Uh, you mentioned Kurt Vonnegut as being one of your favorite writers, at least at that time. What uh, what is it about his books that spoke to you as a young man in particular? He just told stories in a way that that were so irreverent and different and completely caught me off guard in a way that was important. Because um, I think I started reading him when I was 15, and he was, he was a big favorite for two or three years at that, as, at that time in my life. And, I mean, there was a book called uh, Breakfast of Champions, where he actually drew pictures. Like, he's not that great of an artist, but he drew pictures. Mm-hmm. And, like, at page what, whatever, he says, well, this is a picture of an asshole, and it's like this big, giant asterisk. You know? <laughs> Um, and just when I was 16, that just blew me away that you could just be that irreverent and that you didn't have to play by any rules and that you could, you could be satirical and you could have fun with the story and you could completely push back against the rules of narrative. And so I think, you know, at a time when, when teachers, when you're studying the basics that you're supposed to learn in class, and I have nothing against that, I like, I like what I studied in English classes, just the fact that Vonnegut showed that you have fun. You could not just have fun, but you could actually, you could really satirize a lot of bad things that are happening in the world and, and celebrate things that are good in us through this very irreverent form. You know, you could, you could write a book that literally has a line drawing of an asshole in it, and it could still speak to, to some very true things about life in a way that were poignant, even as they were funny. So, um, yeah, it's funny, you know, I haven't, I, when I was in Cairo, Egypt, years ago, I went back and reread some Vonnegut, and it was just different. I didn't, I was reading it as an older person and, and as a different person, and it didn't have the same effect. I, I liked the stories, but somehow that energy that just that just resonated in me when I read him as a teenager was different. And in a way, that's good. I think it's good to have different books resonate at different times in your life. But but definitely, Kurt Vonnegut was a was a big influence at that point. Hmm. And I noted uh, the the long hair that you had had at that time, which you do not have anymore. Um, and as a a 21-year-old that has had at least shoulder-length hair for several years now, um, and and I consider cutting it like every once in a while. It'll it'll start to annoy me. Um, when did you decide to uh, to chop that off? Once again, just just a little uh, personal curiosity. No, it's funny. I've had two phases of long hair in my life, and one was I always tell this story about the summer of 1991 when I cut off my mullet and grew up my grunge hair and went to Lollapalooza and spent my first day in a mosh pit. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's really true, that I, I had sort of hair befitting my social class in my region, uh, which is the, the classic mullet. And then I went to Oregon. I, I was discovering this new music. And so by the end of 1993, I had I had hair a little bit past. I was full on grunge. I, I looked the part. I was actually a distance runner. So I had uh, my skinny heroin chic was actually running 50 miles a week. And I just looked as grunge as it gets. I cut that off on my ver- the, on the day I went on my first vagabonding trip. Like I, I was living in a van. Um, I didn't want, I don't know if it exists anymore, but at the time there was still a little bit of a lingering hippie stigma where people didn't like people with long hair. This is in 1994. <laughs> and so I thought I'll just, I'll just sidestep it. And so I cut it short. And, and so I had it short for several years. I had perfectly great. And, and I, did, I was 23 on that first vagabonding trip. And I always say you can only travel America as a 23 year old once. I just had so much fun. And then I moved to Korea and I started growing it back out, I think pretty much from the first year. So like over the course of 
that first year in Korea, it kept getting longer and longer so that by the time I was traveling again, I spent most all of 1999 with long hair. And then I was in Egypt. I was in Dahab, Egypt, and some people talked me into cutting my hair off. I looked super bohemian. I had like these these clunky brown, you know, tortoiseshell eyeglasses and this super long hair, and I didn't care about fashion. I was just wearing whatever cheap crap I had. And then I sort of had a crush on a girl, and I let her cut my hair, um, little <laughs> Steffi. And, uh, and it worked. I, you know, I have a widow's peak uh, style hair, and if I tried, I'm 47 now, so if I tried to go my hair long again, I would look ridiculous. <laughs> that, that was my swan song. One, um, those are both pretty interesting hair stories, actually. So they, they both involve travel. One is that I cut it off because I didn't want any lingering hippie stigma in 1994, and then I let a pretty girl from Belgium cut my hair in 2000, in the year 2000. And now I would just look stupid if I tried to grow my hair long because it's, um, you know, it's thinner on top. And so that ship has sailed. But I wouldn't, you know, especially in your position, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, if, the, if the spirit <laughs> leads you, feel free to cut your hair, but it's not something that you necessarily need to do. Life goes on. Taking a turn now, given your worldliness, I'm hoping you can share some of your perspective on immigration. I know it's a really contentious issue in the United States right now, and I, I would love to hear you speak on that topic. Um, maybe not necessarily like uh, prescribing any specific policy, but just your own your own sentiments of uh, people people coming into the country. Um, in particular, during your episode on the Tim Ferriss show, you mentioned uh, Con Air on a on a bus in Syria, and that was back in in 2014 that you recorded that. Um, but but you and Tim discussed how like it was sad to know that people you had like made a lighthearted connection with we're going through some really difficult things now and that's only worsened in the time since um so like with that sort of thing in mind what what do you what do you think about immigration yeah well that i mean that's a very specific thing and that's very close to my heart and i've i've been raising money i made a i made a comic book with my nephew which we sell and we give all the money for uh, syrian refugee charities Something, I mean, there's, there's several different lessons, and I'll give you a few examples. One of, one of which is Syria, which is that just the, the, the generosity and big-heartedness and just normalcy of people like who live in Syria. I don't know if I talked about it in that interview, but I, I sat in commissionally. I, 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 I sat in towns um, 17, 18 years ago that are now have had contentious battles between ISIS and Kurdish uh, Peshmerga and, and other bombed by Russian-supported um, jet planes out of Damascus, where I sat with a bunch of dudes and talked about the NBA, you know. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we were having some sort of pie-in-the-sky story about how, well, I come from a Christian country and you come from a Muslim country. We were just talking, you know. And this happens everywhere. I think that we, we sort of categorize people from other countries by whatever stereotype or fear we have, you know. So French people eat a lot of cheese and wear berets and are not always polite, Um and people from Argentina dance well, and, and then, you know, people from Islamic countries hate America, or whatever the, the prevailing uh, prejudice is at the time. When you travel, you just, you are no longer beholden to that. And pretty soon you're playing dominoes, talking about the Utah Jazz, and, you know, making dirty jokes with a bunch of guys who aren't that much different than you. The only difference is that they learned English and you didn't learn Arabic. So that's one example I've had. And I think a lot of people with a, with a, with a heart for refugees are trying to illustrate that, you know, just that uh, like a lot of the refugees out of a place like Syria, they're, you know, they're, they're in blue jeans and sneakers, you know, they have cell phones, you know, there's not that much different 
than us. And I think if if you I interviewed Rana Jazeerly, who's a who's a baseball writer and a Muslim, on one of my podcast episodes, and we talked about that how a lot of the vitriol that is aimed at Muslims these days stateside was aimed at Catholics in the 1920s. You can take a Klan pamphlet from the 20s that were trying to convince people that Catholics buried a rifle under the church every time a new baby was born so they could rise up and overthrow the country and give it to the Vatican, right? Um, so it's just it's interesting that the conversations that we have at home can become skewed in a way that you just can't allow yourself to talk that way if you've been to these places and you've, you've broken bread with them and you've, and you've um, you know, compared opinions on the Lord of the Rings franchise or whatever else completely normal things you do all the time when you travel with it, be it Syrian, Syrian or French or Argentina or whatever people. So that's one thing is that travel humanizes it. And so it pains me to, to sort of see the way immigrants are characterized. Now, I think that there needs to be, obviously, there needs to be rhyme and reason and a logic to immigration. But I think that's already happening. I think that there's sort of this sort of this populist fear-mongering that attaches itself in a very unproductive way to the immigrant issue. But if you go back to the 1840s or the 1880s or the 1920s, the exact same things were being said about other immigrant groups. And the crazy thing is, is, is that the people who were being picked on, the Irish people who were being picked on in the 1840s and the Jewish people in the 1880s and the Italian people in the 1920s, uh, oftentimes their, their descendants are so assimilated that they are actually now anti-immigrant themselves. Um, I know, I know Mexican Americans in, in Kansas who are like third generation Mexican Americans who are as anti-immigration as, as the whitest of white people in Kansas. So it's weird how that works. Um, but that's one illustration. Travel humanizes these people, and it doesn't allow you to wallow in the stereotypes that we throw at people. Another thing is, I lived when I wrote Vagabonding, I lived in a border town. It was on the border of Thailand and, and Myanmar. And I think any time an artificial national border separates two countries that have different have disparities in wealth, then there's going to be a, an illegal immigration issue anyway. You know that all the all the crappy work in Renong, Thailand, was done by Burmese people because they could be paid next to nothing. All the women who cleaned the room in the residency hotel where I wrote Vagabonding were Burmese women. You know, I, some travelers would try to talk to them in Thai, but they didn't understand all that well because they were Burmese. I've seen it in, in, in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. You go outside and the people doing all the work are Haitians, you know. Um, you know, there's an immigrant class of Dominicans in New York where I'm sitting right now um, who ended up doing a lot of the working class jobs, who are sort of the immigrant class in a city like New York. Well, in Santo Domingo, that's normal. And the Haitians are the people who end up doing all the construction and, and are cleaning the hotel rooms and things like that. So that's another dynamic is just to understand that uh, one reason we have a lot of immigrants, especially like immigrants from Mexico and Central America, you know, those are those have the same land border issues that Burma and Thailand have or, or Haiti and the Dominican Republic would have is that there's an economic pretext to that. Um, and it's, you know, that's how we get a lot of cheap stuff. That's how, that's how um, farmers in California find people to pick their vegetables for next to nothing. Um, and so I think despite all the rhetoric that we toss around about immigration in the ideal sense, is that every border that has a less wealthy country abutting a slightly wealthier country then you're going to have – immigration is going to ha happen whether whatever laws we make about it, you know. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can find ways to regulate it. And, again, I don't, I don't think it's – I'm not a complete open borders guy. I think there should be rhyme and reason for how this works and, and just, just sort of procedural 
a procedural rationale for how it works. But it's a free market decision. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, rhetoric about socialist policies. Well, at the end of the day, a lot of immigration isn't a centrally controlled thing. It's what happens when poor people move to a to a, a richer place and they're able to clean a room for a couple dollars in Thailand and they can send that money home or to clean a room for $20 in wherever, San Diego, and send that money home. Um, so I think there's a lot of dishonesty about how we discuss immigration sometimes, that it's actually, it's the free market. It's not some pie-in-the-sky prescriptive socialist idea to turn on the tap of immigration. It's just something that's going to happen. And so that's something, if you've lived in the in, in Santo Domingo or if you live in Renong, Thailand, uh, or any other number of places, if you live in India and realize that a lot of the people doing the hard work are from Nepal, um, if you live in another part of Thailand, all the workers are from, from Laos, you know. Um, so... It's just a thing that happens. And I think taking a political stance against immigration is really symbolic. That's one thing you learn about travelers, that all borders are porous. And the conversation shouldn't be about the if immigration should happen, but just how it can be regulated and how it can be made more human in, in the best interest of everybody. Hmm. Uh, you might be uh, familiar with Sebastian Younger. He has a theory about mandatory national service which I find incredibly fascinating, but I don't see how it could like realistically be, be implemented in the United States. Um, his, his idea is that it would be good to get young people shipped out, like maybe upon the time of high school or college graduation, to um, serve for a period of like six months to two years, and we would see benefits of such a program back home. And, you know, I just said like, I I you, I don't see how feasible a program like that would be. I think there might be a lot of resistance to it. But in terms of changing the perspective of foreign people on the home front, is there anything we can do to encourage a sense of uh of this worldliness or encourage people to get out and break bread with with other people so that we see a a change of heart with people that that might not uh, feel the same way and perhaps fall prey to the fear mongering that does take place in the media. Um, is there anything like the the average uh, twenty one year old can do to to change perspective on the issue? I really think it's 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 an individual person by person thing. You know, Americans don't like prescriptive uh, duties. Actually, yeah, I, I think it would be very beneficial this idea of. of mandatory national service. Of course, I don't know if I would have thought that way when I would have been forced to do it. But mm -hmm. I didn't do the peace I didn't do the Peace Corps, but I spent two years in Korea and just the the ways that changed my life and really enhanced and improved my life are just beyond what can be described now. Um, and it wasn't always a, an easy time for me, but God, I I just learned so much and I'm I'm such a broader person for having done that. I have a lot of friends who similarly had had similar experiences in the Peace Corps. Um and, you know, there's maybe other people who've been in the National Forest Service or, or have, have had other um, more service-oriented jobs when they're young that help. Um, but, again, Americans don't like prescriptions. Uh, and so I think it's, a, it's an individual thing. It's a person-by-person -person thing. And it's – we're not going to have this revolution where suddenly everybody – if it was, it would be a fad, right? If suddenly everybody is, is, is going to another country. 
Even mm-hmm. sometimes I, I, I see like volunteering within religious circles or idealistic circles. I, I, I taught at Yale for a while, and a lot of my Yale students would they were always looking for programs to go overseas. And often them, oftentimes they were very idealistic programs, and that's great. There's a lot to learn, but it's just oftentimes I told them, go for a year and just goof off. You know, you're you're not a dumb person. You're not a person with bad values. You, you don't need this structure of things to do. I think a lot of, you know, idealistic young Christian people go and they build a church that in a country that, like in Mexico, where all their laborers are building actual buildings in, in our country. You know, I, I think that there's a certain... <laughs> People are putting the cart before the horse in that they're 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 starting out with with starry ide- idealism without knowing much about the world. I say go out, have fun, party a little bit, uh, learn as much as you can, meet as many people as you can. You'll come back knowing exactly the change that you want to make in the world, and you'll be able to affect that change on a person-to-person level. So, if there's someone you know who, who who's travel-minded and idealistic and excited about what about the world to come, I think that. You can't underestimate your ability to just sort of light the fire in, in, in somebody else. You know, when I when I wrote Vagabonding, I wasn't sure who was going to read it. Well, a lot of people have read it, and one very important person who read it was Tim Ferriss. You know, he was able to spread that that very simple message through a different medium to uh, tons of people, including you and your father, from the sound of it. So I think that small gestures count for a lot in ways that you have no idea how they will manifest yet. And so I think oftentimes we're waiting for the, the mandatory national service to come or the revolution to come when, in fact, just humbly seeking to, to live in an interesting way, seeking to be more international and, and just sort of sharing it with your friends in a way that it becomes irresistible is going to be, is going to be more effective than a broader and more prescriptive plan. Rolf, I think that's the perfect place to tie things together. I will, of course, uh, link to your website and to the podcast and the show notes of the episode. Do you want to plug uh, the Paris workshop or, or anything else? Um, because now would be the time to do so. Exactly. I'll, I'll plug three things. One okay. is the Paris Writing Workshop, which is an intensive one-month class that I teach with three other teachers every year in the month of July. It is a fantastic way to... Um, do a deep dive into writing in one of the world's most beautiful cities. Every July, that's pariswritingworkshop.com, or you can, it's linked to my website, rolfpotts.com. Second thing I'll talk about is I have a new book uh, that came out exactly a week ago, uh, at the time that we were recording this. It's called Souvenir. It is a short book that is about the things we collect on our travels, the psychology and the history and, and anthropology behind them, to explore sort of the question of why we use these objects to structure our memories and our lives. Souvenirs in bookstores everywhere. It's probably most commonly found on online bookstores like like Amazon. And the third thing is my podcast. I'm on uh, episode 20, debuted today at the time of this recording. It's called Deviate with Rolf Potts. Uh, you can go to rolfpotts.com slash deviate and uh, find an archive of all my episodes or sign up on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So there's my triple plug for you. All right. Hey, Rolf, and uh, th- thanks again for, for all of the generosity and in, in getting things set up to talk and for the conversation today. Um, man, I'm a huge fan, and uh, podcasting has allowed a unique opportunity to connect with people on a personal level. Um, so thanks for, for agreeing to, to do this, and man, I wish you well. Yeah, good luck to you in your own journey. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit chancebychance.com, where you can learn more about the platform find more material, and support the show. 
The theme music is by Josh Johnson. There is a link to more of his work in the show notes to the episode. Until next time, thank you for listening.